The Republican Party platform has always been one of opportunism. They aren't and never have been people-oriented, and they have never cared a damn for the individual unless that individual was rich, powerful, or influential in ways that advanced their agenda. Let's not think that because the Republicans led the fight against slavery, that made them sympathetic to or accepting of blacks. They didn't really care about the human rights aspect of slavery. They cared about the economic impact and availability of jobs for free Americans. Freeing the slaves had precious little to do with the lives and dignity of the people affected by slavery and more to do with punishing the states that rebelled. Even I had this perception of the Republican Party at its infancy that was way different than what it was. Its motivations were way different than what I thought they were. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. Good morning, class, and welcome to Propagandists Indoctrination 101, aka a survey of the rise of the Republican Party. Here, you'll learn about political power plays, but they'll be framed as humanitarian acts. You'll be taught to respect politicians for, quote, freeing slaves, but you won't learn the real reason why it happened, because it makes conservatives look bad. And even in our very liberal education environment, we must perpetuate these fairy tales so the rich can stay rich and the poor get poorer, because that's the American way. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And in this week's episode, we're going to take a look at the progression of the Republican Party from Lincoln to 45 and hopefully show how things have been business as usual and business over the individual from literally day one. This week will be sort of a survey class leading into a conversation next week about why evangelicals fit the Republican mold so well. But before we get into any of that, yeah, I looked at your notes, uh, misogyny central. Yeah, On pretty much. Christians behaving badly this week. Yes. Let's have it. In straight up misogyny news, we learned that divorce is never an option for anyone at all. Not anyone ever and not especially women. Oh, of course, not especially women. Of course. I mean, who was taken in the act of adultery? Oh, just the woman. Just the woman. Where was the boyfriend? She you was dancing with him. herself, don't you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I'm sure that's what was going on. Yeah. Okay, there's one exception to that, though, but I'll get into that later. Pastor Jason Graber of the Sure Foundation Baptist Church, I almost said Sure Fire Baptist Church, <laughs> in Spokane, Washington. They should they be fired. Yes, they should. <laughs> Makes it clear that divorce is never on the table. It doesn't matter if there's abuse or adultery or anything else. Once this honeymoon's over, that's it. You've made a promise under God and you're chained together for life. Because according to him, it's not what God wants. Thinking about Sybil and Basil. Remember <laughs> back 15 years ago when you and I were manacled together? That's what I thought of. Yeah. When I read that line, that was immediately what I thought of. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, this guy seems like he, he looks like he's about 20. 
Probably. He goes on to explain that if someone who's divorced marries again, that God says it's adultery. And the punishment for adultery is death. So that means divorce is out of the question if it's after the honeymoon. But it's okay during the honeymoon. Yes, it's okay during the honeymoon. Who gets divorced during their honeymoon? Well, it depends, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But you know what? He is right to a certain extent here. If in we're the, talking about the Bible, yeah. he's right. It's right there in 1 Corinthians 7. But, I mean, I don't think that even those verses talk about the honeymoon or even give a timeline. No. It just gives you criteria for ditching your wife if she turns out to not be a virgin yeah. or if somebody gets divorced or something, or you find out that she was divorced, which also would make her not a virgin. So I'll shut up. You, you keep going. <laughs> His exception is precisely that. If you go on your honeymoon and you find out that your wife is not a virgin, you can bow out and get your marriage annulled. And I mean, this just goes back. We had a whole discussion about this <laughs> yeah. on this show. How do you even know? Because yeah. blood is not an indicator. It's not. But back in the biblical days, they thought it was. But notice that this exception is only for men. And let's be honest here. Most men don't have a clue as to how women's bodies work. Not even in the year 2021. No. And they still think the hymen is something they have to puncture. <laughs> so how would they know their wife isn't a virgin? Because blood is no indicator. As you said, mm -hmm. it's just crazy. It's, no, it's, it's very crazy. There are so many different variables in terms of what's going to happen that first time. Yeah. There's no guarantee that you will have any evidence whatsoever. Right. And like I said many, many weeks ago now when we were talking about this, I just have to wonder, going back into biblical times, how many women had bad things happen to them because it's just not the way their body worked. Yeah. You know, it yep. didn't produce this evidence that no. everyone wanted to see. So that must mean that she was a certain kind of girl. Right. No. Uh, all it means is that she has a certain kind of body mm -hmm. that didn't do that the first time she had sex. No. That's it. But the worst part is that he's telling this to women, mostly young women, letting them know that if there is any abuse at all, she has no choice but to stay and keep having kids. And that's pretty standard yeah. in evangelical circles, even among evangelical counselors. Yeah. They'll all say the same thing. It's yeah. like, look, this is the whole issue of what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Yeah. And that includes you. And that is, it's some of the most toxic teaching yeah, definitely. out there. And I know that it has ruined so many lives. Yeah. So I, many lives. Yeah. I can't imagine how many injuries and deaths this is going to lead to this or attitude has, has led or to has. Let, let's let's talk in past present and future tense about this because right. this has been a problem literally since deuteronomy 22 when it became okay to rape a girl as long as you paid her father off and married her yeah it's been a problem since yeah. then yeah basically so what else have you got for us tonight well in other news we have the latest in beach trends oh awesome i love the beach yes in a video going viral on TikTok, a Christian preacher is carrying a sign that says, God says Christian women dress modest on a beach. Okay, all of a in, sudden I'm not liking the whole yeah. beach concept in as Florida. much. In Florida. In Florida. There we go. 
Oh, extra and, points if it's in Florida. Yeah, right. Because it's freaking hot down there. Um, and oh, and the sign says "Repent and Turn to Jesus." Such beachy vibes. I know that's what I go to the beach for. Yeah, so he, that's precisely what I want to be looking at when I go to the beach. Yeah, right. He also indicates the verse one Timothy two nine, which many refer to as the modesty verse. But it's not. No, it's not. The writer of this letter is not talking about bodily modesty. They're talking about fine, expensive clothing, hairstyles, and fancy jewelry, modesty of lifestyle and appearance. They didn't even talk about sexual modesty. They're talking about being humble in appearance. I'm, I'm going I'm to play devil's advocate here for yeah. just a minute because, you know, there is definitely a question of yeah. whether or not a bikini fits that mold. Yeah. But the bottom line for me is that that's what you wear at the beach. Yeah. You're not going to go out to a fancy dinner in a bikini. But at the beach, it's completely acceptable. Right. So who am I to say what's modest and what's not in a context where wearing as little clothing as possible for all genders right. is acceptable? And, you know, we have very clear lines drawn in the sand as to what you can actually show on your body in right. public. So as long as you're not crossing those lines and it's acceptable in the context of where it's happening, then how do you turn around and say that that's immodest? It's socially acceptable yeah. where it's happening. Yeah, I know. Why is it always the women who get dinged on appearance? Why is it always women who get dinged on anything? I know. Why is it that they bear the brunt of everything? They're blamed for literally the fall of mankind. Right. We get blamed for everything. It's ridiculous. It is. But Katie Simmons, poster of the TikTok, wasn't discussing theology and didn't care to. She's on the beach. <laughs> Sir, it's a beach. Are we supposed to dress modest at a beach? And then she said, what if God's fake? No, what if? I mean, and she I've says I've contemplated it. this once yes, or twice. Yes, I've, we have. We all have. She's not going to change his mind with this. But he's also not carrying that sign for anyone but himself. Maybe that guy should pluck the beach out of his eye lest he sin. Discipleship requires sacrifice. That's very true. <laughs> and, you know, if your right eye offends thee, then don't go to the fucking beach. Yeah, right. Because you're going to see women in bikinis. Going to see them out of the right eye and the left eye. You'll be blind by the end of the day. Very true. You know, <laughs> throw some of that sand in your oh, face so that you don't have to see it. Yes. You know, do the whole self-deprecation thing. Yes. And throw some sand in your face. I'm, And I've heard of way worse. Some of the church fathers. Oh, yeah. And some of the early theologians some of the things that they did to themselves to mm -hmm. keep themselves from quote unquote lusting. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. And yeah. this guy definitely strikes me as the type that would have that kind of a mindset, but because we live in modern times and because we don't do things like that these days, the next best thing is to go to the beach and just wave signs that tell the whole world about your own insecurities as a person yeah. and as a man more to the point, as a heterosexual man that doesn't want to have this constant temptation put in front of him. Well, you know, I'm really sorry, but most of us are able to manage those situations pretty well. Yeah. And if you can't, uh, stay home. Yeah, that's a you problem. That's, that is your solution. Don't put yourself 
in the position where you are going to be tempted. We actually did this skit when I was in youth group mm -hmm. where somebody went through the entire Lord's Prayer <laughs> and when it got to the point where he says, and lead us not into temptation, God kind of breaks in and says, yes, I'll do that as long as you don't intentionally put yourself in situations where you will be tempted. Right. So, you know, and I'm not saying that I agree with any of it, but mm -hmm. I think that from a contextual standpoint here, it definitely applies. Oh, definitely. It's like, lead me not into temptation. Well, dude, you drove yourself to the beach. <laughs> I have nothing to do with that. Yeah. Stay home. That's your solution here. So on that happy note, just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. If you have a five spot, you can throw our way. We will put it to good use. If you don't, then continue listening. Tell someone new about the show this week. Give us a five-star rating here or there. Write a review when you can. Just make sure that more people know that we're out here. And who knows, you could help someone get and stay unbound just by telling them that we're here or sharing your favorite episode or mentioning us in a conversation or any of the ways that good podcasts get spread. That's up to you. And we appreciate your effort in helping us to keep this thing going in whatever way you're able to do it, whether it's with money or with one or more of the things that I just described, you're going to be helping us out tremendously. And more importantly, you could be helping someone else get and stay unbound. And that is what we're here for. And that is our purpose. Patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network if you can help us out. Otherwise, just keep listening, keep getting what you need from this show and keep coming back every week. We'll be here for you. And with that, Let's dive right into our main topic for this episode. So we're talking about the Republican Party this time around, where it came from, where it is, and where leaving it largely unchecked has already led and will continue to lead if it's allowed to go there. My main source tonight is an article from Vox.com that I went over a bunch of times found multiple sources to corroborate the information that's in the article. There were things that even I wasn't aware of. Starting out with this, I wasn't aware of certain very key details, and I knew precisely where I wanted to go with this episode, and I knew how I wanted to frame it. I just didn't know how much ammo there actually was going to be, because even I had this perception of the Republican Party at its infancy that was way different than what it was. Its motivations were way different than what I thought they were. And what it really boils down to is that they've basically been the same since their inception. And their motivations have been the same since their inception. They did have their moments where they looked just a little bit more humanitarian, but it was all for show. And we're going to get into a bunch of that right now. Let's start off by talking about the Republicans and slavery. For the first 50 years or so after the founding of the United States, slavery was just one issue in American politics and really wasn't one that got much attention. The Southern economy relied on slave labor and neither of the two major parties at the time, the Democrats or the Whigs, were exactly outspoken about slavery. The South was basically allowed to do what it wanted and got way too used to it in a very short expanse of time. When the U.S. began expanding westward, there were questions of which states would allow slavery and which ones would not. There were many who opposed slavery and were rightly concerned that if too many states became slave states, 
Those states would have too much power, especially in terms of steering presidential elections. And it didn't start out as a North versus South thing either. There were a few radicals out there rousing the rabble. It wasn't even a moral question, just in case anyone has any lingering doubts about how inherently racist white people are. And we are, all of us, whether we want to admit it or not. And you will never sway my opinion on this as long as Jane Elliott's experiments keep churning out the same results. We'll talk about racism as it relates to evangelicalism in a later episode, but oddly enough, evangelicals are not the problem when it comes to racism in America. It was alive and well at America's founding. Evangelicalism was barely a thing and wasn't a thing in any corporate or organizational sense at that time. So what was the North worried about if it wasn't the enslavement of their fellow human beings? The real concern was the fear of slave power. They worried that the South, quote, would become a cabal that would utterly dominate U.S. politics, instituting slavery where they could and cutting off opportunity for free white laborers. That's from a book called To Make Men Free by Heather Cox. Republicans never cared that the slaves were black. They cared about what the slaves contributed to the Southern economy and that jobs could have been filled by free white laborers who would be earning wages that would be put back into the economy. They worried that those jobs were being filled by slaves who didn't have money to spend, so it didn't complete the circle the way that they liked, the way that they wanted it to, the way that they saw would be most beneficial to the people on top. And that's been their concern from day one, is the people on top. And it was over this issue and others that were equally opportunistic and not all that humanitarian that the Whig Party collapsed and the Republican Party rose from the ashes. The year was 1854. Kansas and Nebraska were being admitted into the Union, and there was intense controversy over whether or not those states would be slave or free. With the Whigs all but scattered to the four winds, a new, uniquely Northern Party emerged. Quote, while not calling for abolishing slavery where it already existed and certainly not calling for racial equality, this new party would be resolutely opposed to expanding slavery any further. Its supporters and sympathizers won an impressive share of seats in Congress, and it became known as the Republican Party. So let's not think that because the Republicans led the fight against slavery, that made them sympathetic to or accepting of blacks. They didn't really care about the human rights aspect of slavery. They cared about the economic impact and availability of jobs for free Americans. In other words, they were looking out for the white people, and they've been doing that ever since. And that leads us into the subject of the Civil War and the emancipation of slaves. The North versus South conflict emerged with the formation of the Republican Party and grew more and more heated between 1854 and 1861. There were free soilers fighting pro-slavery settlers in Kansas, and our Supreme Court, in true white supremacy fashion, ruled in Dred Scott that blacks could not become citizens. And then there was abolitionist John Brown, who led an armed insurrection against slave owners. So things started to get very tense. The South liked its free labor. The North wanted to make sure that the, quote, real Americans got paid for the work they did, and that the work existed for them to do in the first place. This wasn't a bad thing in and of itself, but the motivations were questionable. 
The Republicans continued building momentum in the North, and in 1860, Abraham Lincoln, a Republican, became president. And the great emancipator, contrary to what elementary school history classes want to tell you, wasn't specifically anti-slave. In fact, Lincoln reportedly promised that he fully intended to let slave states remain slave states and work to keep and establish as many free states as possible. Even Abraham Lincoln didn't seem to have a moral issue with slavery. There were, however, a number of white slave owners in the South who really didn't like the idea of having to follow the lead of a bunch of Yankees. So what did they do? They got 11 states to secede from the Union. The emergent quote-unquote nation was called the Confederate States of America, which didn't bode well with the North. And there began the U.S. Civil War in 1861. So what was the Civil War about? really. At first, the North's stated aim was merely to restore the South to the Union, not to free slaves. But as the war dragged on, the strategic imperatives inexorably pulled Lincoln and the Republicans further toward abolition and as they sought to undermine their Southern opponents. The Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 is often taught in public schools as the ostensible end of slavery, but it wasn't. Again, Freeing the slaves had precious little to do with the lives and dignity of the people affected by slavery and more to do with punishing the states that rebelled. The four states that didn't rebel were allowed to keep their slaves. It was a power move and nothing but a power move, pure and simple. This whole thing has much more of a capital versus the districts vibe than any of us should ever be comfortable with. If you are familiar with the Hunger Games and you've actually read the books, you know what I'm talking about here. And we heard whisperings of this as far back as the Civil War. And it's amazing to me what we have allowed to have happened since and where things are still going. The fact that the Republican Party is still moving in the same direction absolutely boggles my mind. In a century and a half, we still haven't learned anything. Mm. It's crazy. But getting back to our timeline a little bit here, in early 1865, the Civil War was coming to an end, and it was in this year that Congress approved the 13th Amendment, banning slavery nationwide. The states ratified the amendment later that same year. So to review, the Republicans didn't want to end slavery per se. All they wanted was to stop its expansion into the North. All of this preamble is necessary to understand what the framework of the Republican Party looked like, because knowing that makes it easier to see how the party got from Lincoln to 45, and it wasn't the giant leap that some history books want it to look like. Let's take a brief look at the Republican Party and black rights. Now, in the years following the Civil War, the Republican Party did take on a more humanitarian persona especially when it came to black rights. For a very brief period of time after the end of the Civil War, Republicans truly fought for the rights of black Americans. Frustrated by reports and abuses of and violence against former slaves in the post-war South, and by the inaction of then-President Andrew Johnson to put a stop to it, a faction known as the Radicals gained increasing sway in Congress. The Radicals, and this is another little quote from the article, the Radicals drove Republicans to pass the country's first civil rights bill in 1866 and to fight for voting rights for black men, though not yet women, 
at a time when such an idea was still controversial, even in the North. The Republicans also penned two crucial constitutional amendments. They changed the language of the Constitution to make anyone born in the U.S. a U.S. citizen, which was the Citizenship Clause, and removed race restrictions in voting rights with the 15th Amendment of 1870. They required the states that rebelled to embrace these concepts on a legal level or else face not being readmitted to the Union. Just a few years earlier, the idea that a major party would fight for the rights of black citizens to vote in state elections would have been unthinkable. Unfortunately, though, this newfound commitment to black rights wouldn't last very long. After 1870, the makeup and persona of the Republican Party really began to take shape. It became the party of rich, white Northerners, and economic issues were at the forefront of issues with which the party was concerned. The North was always more industrialized than the South, which was predominantly agricultural, and industrialization began intensifying in the North after the Civil War. The Civil War was also a time of aggressive government expansion. Many people became rich and owed their good fortune to the Republican Party. Isn't it amazing how war and the things that surround war are the things that make the most money? Yeah, it's amazing. It really, really is. And it's been, it's literally been part of our history since this country's inception. Yeah. Capitalizing on war and the details related to war. It's sickening to think about that this has been part of our history from the beginning and it's still allowed to be a thing. Yeah. The party's economic policies, uh, Cox Richardson writes, were creating a class of extremely wealthy men. The party began attracting a lot of industrialists and financiers, and their interest in getting and staying rich became the party's reason to be. They were kind of awful then, even if they tried for a hot minute to look a little bit more humanitarian. They really didn't do that great a job of that. Republicans had done a lot to help former slaves in the South, but many of the gains they had made existed more on paper than in practice, and others were in danger of being rolled back. And there was plenty of backlash and backpedaling on some very new Republican policies. White Southerners and radicals were strongly at odds and exchanges were becoming more aggressive by the day. Northerners basically decided that they'd done enough to improve the lives and liberty of Southern blacks and attempted to shift the focus back onto something that meant something to them, maintaining their wealth and power. There was unrest over the subject of states' rights, and many wondered how long it would be until the federal government stepped in. Republicans really began distancing themselves from the subject of race around the mid-1870s. The states that were readmitted to the Union were basically left alone to write their own laws when it came to any matter concerning race. The result was an upsurge of white conservative governments on both local and state levels. So what about those changes and additions to the Constitution that were supposed to identify blacks as equal to whites? Well, those lower governmental bodies that didn't like them did pretty much what the Supreme Court did with Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. They basically ignored the Constitution and did whatever the fuck they wanted with total impunity. And what was the response of the Republican Party to this? How did they step up and stand for black rights? How did they perpetuate their reputation as being a political party that actually is concerned with human rights? Are you ready? Wait for it. Nothing. They did nothing. 
just like pro-lifers. They created a policy, they got the US Constitution amended, and then walked away. They gave birth to a good concept, but abandoned the cause shortly after. Quote, the cause of equal rights for black citizens would now essentially vanish from national American politics for decades, unquote. So let's take a look a little bit further ahead and talk about the rise of conservatism in the United States. Another little quote from the same article, we know the Republican Party today as a party that hates government interference with business, but as the 20th century started, progressive reformers who wanted to check the power of corporations and the wealthy had some support in both parties, and notably from Republican President Theodore Roosevelt. Of course, that really didn't last long. Fast forward just a few years. It's 1913. Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, has won the White House and the Republicans are none too happy. They argued that Wilson's progressive reforms expanded the power of government too much. Republicans and Democrats have their own stereotypes and always have. Republicans typically want smaller government with less oversight and power, especially over corporations, whereas Democrats typically like big, robust government with lots of social programs and they fund them by taxing the rich. That is basically a kindergarten level description with all kinds of places to go from there. And all of that isn't necessarily 100% true or accurate either. And it certainly isn't in 100% of cases. But when Republicans regained power in the 1920s, they positioned themselves as the party of business. They thought that business and business expansion was the definition of prosperity, and they governed in a way that largely favored business over the needs of the individual. Then the Great Depression happened, and power shifted again. You know, we really aren't all that smart, and we really don't learn jack shit from history, do we? Yeah. The Republican Party had the White House from 1921 to 1932, and during that time, they minimized the importance of the individual and gave so much power to corporations that when the entire structure fell like a house of cards, no one came out on top. Not the banks, not corporations, and certainly not the American working class. The way they were doing things flat out wasn't working. And when you look at all the circumstances that led up to the Great Depression, it looks like a proverbial latex balloon, a huge, massive, insanely large balloon that spent nine years being inflated and exploded with a huge bang from all the stupid policies, business dealings, and unchecked trading of stock that was insanely overvalued. And here's just a quick timeline. Through the 1920s, the U.S. economy expanded rapidly, and the nation's total wealth more than doubled between 1920 and 1929. More than doubled in nine years, a period dubbed, quote, the Roaring Twenties. The stock market centered at the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street in New York City was the scene of reckless speculation, where everyone from millionaire tycoons to cooks and janitors poured their savings into stocks. As a result, the stock market underwent rapid expansion, reaching its peak in August 1929. This is the perfect storm aspect of this now. Production in a large segment of industry was declining throughout the 20s. Unemployment was on the rise as the result of the loss of jobs when industries began scaling back production. Stocks were trading at prices that were way above their actual worth, and we'll get into why in just a sec. Consumer debt was on the rise, 
Farms were struggling because food costs were on the decline. And banks had too many large loans that they could not liquidate. Then in 1929, the country went into recession. Now, with no one spending money, unsold consumer products began piling up and industries of all description began slowing factory production. And through all of this, stock prices continued to rise. Why? I won't get into a long discussion on the subject of margin lending, but that was the crux of the problem. The concept emerged in the late 1800s as an effort to fund railroads. Railroads, not the stock market. Railroads. But if it can fund railroads, why can't it fund anything? That's a very Republican way of looking at things. Here's a quick explanation of what this is. And if your brain starts complaining at you over this, don't worry. Mine did too. It just did. But it does make sense. You might have to listen to it about three times. I know I had to read it about 10. But this makes sense. Margin buying refers to, um, and this is, this is directly from the Wikipedia on this subject. Margin buying refers to the buying of securities with cash borrowed from a broker using the bought securities as collateral. This has the effect of magnifying any profit or loss made on the securities. So it's the illusion of money and it's the illusion of a successful stock. The securities serve as collateral for the loan, which I still can't wrap my brain around how that would ever work. The net value, the difference between the value of the securities and the loan, is initially equal to the amount of one's own cash used. This difference has to stay above a minimum margin requirement, the purpose of which is to protect the broker against a fall in the value of the securities to the point that the investor can no longer cover the loan. Here's the problem. In an alarming number of instances, minimum margin requirements weren't being met, and there was virtually no oversight or checks and balances, so shares kept getting traded. Their value on paper remained high, but in reality, an insane amount of stock was nothing but valueless paper or close to it, projecting the illusion of actual reasonable value. When the margin call came in on those shares, there was no money to deposit to cover the sale of the stock, and a crippling number of stocks were then liquidated. All of this was allowed to happen by a governmental system that refused to hold corporations accountable for the real value of their stocks. Margin trading made things look good, but the reality was anything but. So what was America's solution to this problem? give the White House back to a Democrat. And this has been our history ever since. Republicans write policy that damages America in all kinds of ways, not just economic. And when things get bad enough, we send in a Democrat to clean up. History shows this pattern over and over again in our national politics. After the Great Depression hit and for a near further decade after it ended, Democrats held the White House because the federal government needed a little bit of parenting. Yeah. That was basically it. Mm. Recessions and economic crises have historically coincided with Republican control over either the White House, Congress, or Senate. It's a broad-sweeping and not all-conclusive statement, but when I did a little digging on U.S. recessions, I found that most took place during or at the tail end of a Republican administration. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it is observable in enough circumstances to at least consider how one affects the other. 
Not every Democratic administration has been a walk in the park for America either. But the negative socioeconomic impact of governmental policy on America points to Republican government influence far more often than it ever does to any other party in America's history. Now, there was a time when the U.S. South was predominantly Democrat, and there were plenty of conservative Democrats who more closely resembled Republicans in their politics than what we think of as Democrat today. One group in particular, the Dixiecrats, were kind of a flash-in-the-pan political party, but they did make their mark, and here's how. The states' rights Democratic Party, whose members are often called Dixiecrats, this is also from the Dixiecrat Wikipedia, was a short-lived segregationist political party in the United States, active primarily in the South. They failed to win, but they did manage to narrow Harry S. Truman's lead in the 1948 presidential election by a considerable margin. Their candidate, Strom Thurmond, carried Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and South Carolina, and received one additional electoral vote in Tennessee. Thurmond became a Republican in 1964, and there was a reason for that. And the term Dixiecrat was actually used well into the 1990s to describe any conservative Southern Democrat, and probably still is in some circles. So now we're going to steer this a little bit more back toward the subject of race. Remember that the Emancipation Proclamation was the product of a Republican White House, and regardless of the motives, black voters sided with the Republicans for decades. But those loyalties began to wane with the advent of the Great Depression and the New Deal. Then, in the 1950s, a major shift took place. All of a sudden, there were twice as many black Americans voting Democrat as there were those voting Republican. Still, and this goes back to the Vox article, considering that the South had been Democratic for so long, it did briefly seem that it was possible the Republican Party would discover its roots as the party of civil rights for black Americans. It was Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower who sent in federal troops to Arkansas to enforce the Supreme Court's decision to desegregate schools after all. But instead, it was a Democratic president, Lyndon B. Johnson, who signed the Civil Rights Act into law in 1964. Republicans gave the bill a good share of support in Congress, but the party's presidential nominee that year, Barry Goldwater, argued that it expanded government power too much. As a result, Republicans went from losing black voters to losing them spectacularly. Ever since, it's been common for 80% or even more of black voters to support Democrats. Interesting how the Republicans have always had a history of putting band-aids on the race relations problem in America, while Democratic administrations tend to enact actual legislation to ensure lasting rights and protections. Eisenhower sent in troops to further a specific image and solve a single problem. LBJ signed the Civil Rights Act. Eisenhower was a Republican. LBJ was a Democrat. And that leads us to a little conversation about the South and their shift away from the Democratic Party to becoming largely Republican. I think we just delivered the South to the Republican Party for a long time to come, President Johnson said shortly after signing the Civil Rights Act, according to his aide Bill Moyers. And indeed, Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina switched his party affiliation from Democratic to Republican specifically for this reason. 
It wasn't an immediate thing since party loyalties run deep in many people, but the shift, although gradual, has been quite permanent. LBJ was right. This was a really big give-take scenario with the eventual effect being the saturation of Republican government with religious ideology, most predominantly evangelical faith. With the insertion of evangelical ideology into the infrastructure of Republican politics, thanks to the moral majority and other smaller groups and even individuals like them, came an entirely new and very aggressive voice on multiple social issues, not the least of which being abortion. White evangelical Christians became newly mobilized to oppose abortion and take stance on other, quote, culture war issues and felt more at home with the conservative party. There was that suspicion of big government and lack of union organization that permeated the region, and talented politicians like Ronald Reagan promised to defend traditional values. Don't even get me started on Ronald Reagan. Mm. (laughs) Still, Democrats continued to maintain control of the House of Representatives for some time, in large part because of continued support from Southerners. But in 1994... The revolution finally arrived as Republicans took the House for the first time since 1955. And many of the crucial pickups that made that possible came from the South. And looking a little bit more into the future and seeing how things look today, for 20 of the past 26 years, Republicans have controlled the House, which has given it a dangerously powerful position in U.S. politics. They have historically carried the white Southern vote, and that has allowed them to maintain their foothold. It has also allowed for the U.S. to keep falling further behind in areas like health care, vacation, maternity leave, and other things that benefit the people who cast those votes because none of those things are ever good for business. And that is, more often than not, the actual, factual bottom line, if you ask a Republican. Oh, And it also perpetuates declines in education, social programs, and much more, and also gives rise to things like removing restrictions on religious gatherings during a pandemic and companies like Hobby Lobby outright barring access to birth control for its employees because children are a gift from God and you shouldn't be fucking without a wedding ring to begin with. Were these things done because they're what the Constitution wanted to facilitate or because the decisions made Republican voters happy? What's the more likely answer here? Well, Republican voters, when I talk about Republican voters, I'm talking about Republican voters who actually survived COVID. The ones who didn't aren't happy about much anymore and might have been happy for years to come if they had just stayed home from church that week. But what about when one of the most evil, vile, corrupt, and unpatriotic political parties in the world isn't quite evil enough? Well, at that point, you form an even nastier version of that party. The Tea Party was first organized in the early days of the Obama administration, um, in the early days of the first black president's administration. Let's make sure that that's crystal fucking clear, too. It opposed things like foreclosure relief and tax reform, but they were all for corporate bailouts. That's worth mentioning. Bailouts that, among other things, saved the same banks that fucked over homebuyers a few years earlier and left an alarming number of Americans either homeless 
or unable to find suitable housing because even with bankruptcy protecting some of their interests, many of them found their credit ratings shot completely to fucking hell. Ever try renting an apartment legally with bad credit? Mm -hmm. It's next to impossible. This is how people become homeless. Right. They lose their homes and then no one will rent to them. Even if they have jobs, even if they have the means to pay first and last month's rent plus security, and they're able to show that they've got a few months stored away with a bad credit rating, it's difficult to find a landlord who is going to rent to you. That's where a lot of problems happen for a lot of people. It's how a lot of people become homeless is because they lose their home and then they can't find a place to rent. But the Tea Party was also a challenge to the Republican Party establishment. Several times, these groups helped power little-known far-right primary contenders to shocking primary wins over establishment Republican politicians deemed to be sellouts. These candidates didn't always win office, but their successful primary bids certainly struck fear into the hearts of many other GOP incumbents and made many of them more deferential to the concerns of conservative voters. Furthermore, many Republican voters also came to believe, sometimes fairly and sometimes unfairly, that their party's national leaders tend to sell them out at every turn. Talk radio and other conservative media outlets helped stroke this perception, and by May of 2015, Republican voters were far more likely to say that their party's politicians were doing a poor job representing their views than Democratic voters were. This deep distrust of elites helped pave the way for 45 and primary runner-up Ted Cruz, another candidate eager to heap scorn on party leaders. Now, there is one thing that the Republican Party needs to keep running like the regrettably well-oiled machine that it is, and that one thing is, you could probably guess what it is, it's white people. They need white people. Lots and lots of white people. Now, there most certainly are quote-unquote minority conservatives, but The supporters they really want and need are those white people. There's just one problem with that, though. White people won't be in the majority anymore in the next few generations. Hispanic populations have been growing in this country for decades, and that creates a problem for Republicans for a few reasons. Most notably, that Hispanic voters are more than 70% Democrat and consistently vote for the liberal candidate. The larger minority groups get, the fewer white people the party will have to keep them in power. So when Obama won a second term in 2012 and the black guy just wasn't going away, the Republicans decided to do something rash, support immigration reform. They needed to make friends and they needed to start making them quickly. Because at this point, In our history, the Republicans are literally afraid that there aren't enough white people here anymore. So they've been scrambling for almost a decade now to try and make friends with minority voters. It's not working very well. No. But that is what they're trying to do. Another little quote from the article. After the 2012 election, Republican leaders began to view the demographic changes in the country as a political crisis for their party. When Mitt Romney lost his bid for the presidency, he got blown out among Hispanic voters. Exit polls showed that 71% of them backed Barack Obama. Hispanic voters, and guess what? Hispanic voters become a larger segment of the electorate every year. Oh, and guess what else? They actually vote. Yeah. They fucking care 
what's going on in their country. Mm -hmm. And they vote. And they vote in huge, huge numbers. That means that it is going to continue to get harder for the Republicans to maintain their foothold as time goes on. It's just going to keep getting more and more difficult. And any efforts that they've made to extend the olive branch to people that they have literally spent the last couple centuries trying to hold down, it's not working out very well for them. And it's not going to in the long term either because, sorry guys, but damage is done. But knowing what their situation is, the Republicans came up with a plan and that plan had all the sincerity and humanitarian motivation of freeing the slaves. Quote, the party would change its tone on immigration, adopting more tolerant rhetoric, and it would also embrace immigration reform. In the Senate in 2013, old hands like John McCain and rising stars like Marco Rubio collaborated with Democrats on a bill that would give unauthorized immigrants a path to legal status. The final Senate roll call was 68 to 32, with all 32 no votes plus 14 yes votes coming from Republicans. But a huge backlash from the Republican Party's predominantly white base, which views the bill as amnesty for people who broke the rules, ensued. As a result, the bill died in the House of Representatives, never even being brought for a vote. That led to distrust of GOP leaders among voters, as well as the eventual end to the campaigns of Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, both of whom were closely tied to immigration reform efforts. This ham-handed attempt at looking like humanists backfired so badly on them that it practically cleared the way for 45 to both secure the RNC nomination and quickly amass a huge following of racist white people. There was a reason why his campaign was a firestorm of hostility toward unauthorized immigrants. There was a big reason for that. And since, we've, since we're already talking about him, let's talk just for a minute, as, as much as I would rather just not talk yeah. about this at all. Let's talk about the rise of 45. There were many reasons why the 2016 election went the way that it did. Notably, 45's campaign appealed to Republican voters' resentment and mistrust of party elites. He did a stellar job of selling the regular guy persona, at least as regular as a perceived billionaire mogul can be. He was crass, he was vulgar, and decidedly unpresidential. And these were all things that appealed greatly to his unwashed disciples. I don't know how many signs that I saw on people's lawns that had the same kind of sentiments. When was the last time you saw a banner for a political candidate, particularly the president of the United States, that had the phrase, no more bullshit on it? Mm. Now, I don't know if this is a thing everywhere, but I certainly know that it's a thing where we live. I know it's a thing in New York. I know that I've seen this more than once. I never in my life saw anything less presidential and less respectful of the country that I live in yeah. than, than that. I even saw signs like homemade signs on people's lawns during the uh, 2016 election that said things like, finally, somebody with balls. Oh, boy. That's, and there was, I'm doing driving lessons and driving past the sign every single day and just wanting to get out of the car and just kick it, you know? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't do that because at the end of the day, these people have their right to free speech the same way I do. And if I'm not going to get kicked for doing this podcast, then I kind of have to leave the sign where it is. Yeah. That's, you know, that's just, that's just, 
that's just erring on the side of right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But yeah, decidedly unpresidential, this guy. And that was the thing that appealed to a lot of people. Then there was the stunt with immigration reform among Republicans, and that's all it was, a disingenuous stunt designed to make friends with the kids the Republican Party spent years shaking down for their milk money. It was one of the worst and most costly moves the party would ever make. 45 also basically owned the media. He was at least perceptibly rich, not as rich as he would like us all to think he is, but perceptibly rich, and he was a bona fide celebrity. He had and has two political advantages that make him and his own ideologies, if you even want to call them that, very, very dangerous. First, he maintains formidable bases of white working class constituents in both the North and the South. And second, his appeal to white evangelicals and evangelicals in general, but white evangelicals in particular, is very, very strong. 80% of white evangelicals voted for him in both elections. It's just that they lost numbers in other areas, but that particular number was very consistent. We already did an entire episode on why Trump appeals to this segment of the population. So I'm not going to get into it again. You can listen to that episode. It's a good one. Came out right before the last election, but those same people were Republican loyalists, the same people who look at 45 as basically a god, were Republican loyalists long before the fifth, long before the 45th presidential administration. And that is where we will pick up the conversation next week. What is it about the religion of love your neighbor that finds appeal in a group of people whose goals and objectives couldn't be further from that concept? What could happen if we don't keep pulling back the curtain on evangelical lies, hypocrisy, and alarmism, and keep lessening their influence over U.S. politics? We'll look at these questions and more in our next episode. Until then, just keep these very important takeaways in mind. The Republican Party platform has always been one of opportunism. They aren't and never have been people-oriented, and they have never cared a damn for the individual unless that individual was rich, powerful, or influential in ways that advanced their agenda. And let's try and get our brains away from the notion of Lincoln freeing the slaves, because he didn't. Lincoln never freed a single slave. What he did was punish the states that seceded from the Union by taking away their cheap labor. The emancipation of slaves was serendipitous at best. Slavery was abolished because abolishing it served Republican interests, not because they thought there was anything wrong with owning people as property. Their God already validated that. Just read Exodus 21. The only reason we even learn as children that slavery was and is wrong is because of the fictitious and hopelessly racist slant put on the subject in public school textbooks. The story of the white top-hatted hero who stood up to slave owners and made black lives in America super way better. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so we're clear. Slavery in America is alive and well behind the walls, bars, and razor wire of Americans' prisons to this day. This isn't something that happened then. It's happening right now in America. It's just not happening in front of society anymore. 
Recessions and economic downturns in America have almost uniformly happened as a result of Republican policy and lawmaking. When things get shitty enough, we bring in the Democrats to unshitty everything. Then we forget and we elect a Ronald Reagan, a George W. Bush, or that guy who headed up the 45th presidential administration, and the cycle repeats. Is it that we haven't learned, or is it that there are still enough people out there who refuse to be educated, swallowing the rhetoric to keep this racist, hate-fueled agenda on life support? I'm not naive enough to think that we can somehow get our messaging through those formidable red ball caps but I do think that the voices of Republican hate and rhetoric are getting smaller over time, and I can observe that they know it. Will any of us see the end of this 19th century thinking in our lifetimes? I don't know. What I do know is that people like Shell and me must do what we can to keep exposing the man behind the curtain to people on the fence and those truth seeker types we love to churn out this content to educate, and you should too. Because keeping the truth in the foreground is the only way that our society has a chance of getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.